0: You are now listening to the April 2nd broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have Nearer to My God to Thee, the sermon, and equipping the saints. First, let's begin with Nearer My God to Thee.
1: from the program, Nearer My God to Thee. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 18 says, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Have you ever thought deeply about this scripture? In all circumstances means in everything. This includes happy things, thankful things, and things to praise about. However, at times it includes sad things, unfair things, distressful things, things that cause anger, and things we can't understand. The Bible tells us to be thankful for all these things. It explains that this is God's will for us who are in Christ. Why is being thankful God's will towards us in Christ? It's because we can be thankful in all circumstances only when our faith is mature. Christians who become God's children through Jesus Christ are always in God's protection. However, that protection doesn't always mean comfort. Also, it doesn't mean that there won't be any trouble. The light of his protection shines brighter in hardship, trouble, and darkness. Therefore, those who are mature in faith can give thanksgiving because they have total faith in God who allows and oversees every situation. This is how God desires us to be. Among the hymns we know well, there is a hymn called Singing I Go. This is the first lyric of the hymn. The trusting heart to Jesus clings, nor any ill forebodes." This hymn confesses that our faith has matured, and we are able to give thanks and praise to the Lord in every situation. Let's listen to the hymn for a moment.
2: The trusting heart to Jesus clings, not any ill forebodes, but at the cross of Calvary sings, Praise God. To Oh lifted loads singing I go along life's road praising the Lord, praising the Lord singing I go along
1: life's road Lord Jesus
2: has lifted my load
1: The trusting heart to Jesus clings nor any ill forebodes but at the cross of cavalry sings, praise God for lifted loads. This hymn confesses, and when my fears are turned to prayers, the burdens slip away. This hymn was written by a woman named Eliza Edmonds Hewitt. She was born in 1851 and grew up in a wealthy family. She had faith, studied well, and poured love unto others. Was she able to make this confession since she lived such a comfortable life? Through a drama, We'll see what kind of situation she was in to turn this confession into a song.
3: Eliza grew up in a wealthy family and studied well. She later became a teacher at a high school in Philadelphia. She liked teaching the students and shared the love of Jesus Christ with them. One winter day in 1887, she was talking to a male student. He caused a lot of trouble and the school already had given up on him. However, Eliza did not give up on him. She believed that the love of Jesus Christ would change the student's heart and talk to him with love. David, I understand you. People can get angry. However, when you got angry, You caused harm to others. David, I pray that you would realize the love of Jesus and change within him. The love of Jesus? I don't believe in such things. If such a thing exists, then why am I living a miserable life? It's all a lie. David, that's not true. Jesus loves you and gave his life for your sin. Be quiet. I don't want to listen anymore. The student who was being counseled by Eliza couldn't contain his sudden rage of anger. He held the chair that was in front of him and beat Eliza. Through this incident, Eliza severely injured her spine and couldn't teach anymore. In addition, she spent the rest of her life with the disability. Eliza became disabled through this incident and it hurt her body and her heart. Her heart was filled with anger and resentment. How can such a thing happen to me? I taught the children in Sunday school every week and taught the students at school while sharing the love of Christ. Why did this happen to someone like me? Why? Why? What did I do wrong? God, are you really there? If you are really there, how can you allow such a thing to happen to me? I'm so resentful. (laughs) <laughs> Eliza's upper body was wrapped in a cast and she was bedridden in the hospital. She couldn't even go to the bathroom on her own and just lied in bed. She was lamenting about her situation. One day, a cleaning lady came into a room to clean and she was humming a hymn. Eliza's suffering was so great that she felt discontent about someone else's happiness amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. You're just a cleaning lady. What is so amazing about grace? It doesn't seem like you have much to be thankful for. Why are you joyfully humming a hymn? It's too noisy. Oh, I'm sorry. I must have bothered you as you mentioned the situation and circumstances of my life are not that good there are many difficulties however i sing praise not because of my situation and circumstance but because of the lord he changes my complaints into praise eliza came to her senses when she heard the woman's reply she felt so ashamed before god for being prideful and full of complaints. She felt the love of Jesus who had no sin but carried the cross for her sins. Then she thought of the scripture, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. She repented of not forgiving the student who made her like this and for blaming and being resentful of her situation. Eventually, she gained true peace in the Lord Thank you, Lord. Thank you for changing my resentment to forgiveness and changing my heart to love. I will praise you as I walk this path of life.
1: Eliza wrote about her experience that day. Later on, her writing became the lyrics to the hymn, Singing I Go. With her disabled body, Eliza spent the rest of her life teaching children with love in Sunday school. Just as the hymn she wrote, she lived by praising the Lord. True thanksgiving is not only given when the situation and circumstances are good. True thanksgiving doesn't change depending on the situation and circumstances. It is given while looking towards God who is sovereign over everything. I hope that we will have the mature faith to give thanks in all circumstances and that true thanksgiving will be in us. We'll end nearer my God to thee
2: The trusting heart to Jesus clings Amen. On go along life's road Praising the Lord, praising the Lord Singing I go along life's road Lord Jesus has lifted my load The passing days bring many cares Fear not, I hear him say My fears are turned to prayers. The burdens slip away. Singing I go along life's road. Praising the Lord, praising the Lord. Singing I go. Jesus has lifted
0: Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Joshua Vincent of Trinity Bible Church in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is, Abraham Believed God. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Joshua.
4: And what's interesting is, is that though I'm not an accountant, I find that accounting is actually really helpful for what Paul is trying to explain when he gets to chapter 4 of Romans. See, what Paul's really trying to do is explain this doctrine of justification by faith alone. And he's really focusing in on, he's zeroing in on this doctrine of of the nature of justification by faith alone that we call imputation, uh, which speaks of counting or charging. Uh, Now, we are in Romans 4, 1 to 8 this morning. Of course, the whole chapter is about imputation, but Paul has up to this point been explaining how accounting relates to justification by faith alone. That's what he's doing in Romans 4. And just to catch you up to speed, Paul has written this letter to explain his understanding to clarify how he understands the gospel according to God, gospel that centers on the righteousness of God. Now, Paul begins by showing that all people, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, the major division of humanity, he says whether you're a Jew or Gentile, I want you to see that everyone is under the just, the righteous wrath of God because nobody meets God's righteous standards. There's nobody that does it. And then in Romans 3 21 to 425, Paul shifts and he locks in on answering another question, which is this How do we receive the gospel of the righteousness of God? How does this, this good news become good news for us? What is the good news for the unrighteous before their righteous God? Well, Paul says justification by faith alone in Christ alone to the glory of God alone eliminates every hint of human boasting. And then in Romans 4, after he shows that there's no place for human boasting with justification by faith alone, he turns and he he wants us to see that there is another aspect of the beauty of this doctrine that we want to really hone in on. And to do this, in Romans 4, he's really just unpacking one verse, a central verse, and that is Genesis 15, 6, which we read at the beginning of the service. And that is the verse where uh, we find that Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And what Paul wants to do is make sure the Christians in Rome understand what he means by this, and he's using Abraham as a, a test case. Now, when it says that God counted this to him as righteousness. This word counted is important. It's going to be repeated again and again throughout chapter 4. In fact, just in verses 1 to 12, it's used eight times. Now this word, I looked it up, and it literally means to keep records of commercial accounts involving both credits and debits. It's to put into one's account, if you're accounting something to someone, to charge to their account, to regard as an account. It's accounting language. Now, we often think of accounting as something that is very rigid and boring, not exciting like the FBI. But when we think about accounting with regard to God's accounting, I hope that this morning what you see is, is that for the believer, we find that God's accounting is generous and beautiful it is hope birthing and life giving see god's accounting is worth reveling in and meditating on and living for see before abraham was circumcised in genesis 17 and before moses gave the law 400 years later Abraham was counted righteous by faith. And the theology of God's accounting here is what we call imputation. It's what Paul is spending this whole chapter meditating on, unpacking for us. Now if you're taking notes, let me just give you our big idea for this morning, and it's this. It's that through faith, God graciously counts you righteous and does not count your sins against you. Through faith, God graciously counts you righteous and he does not count your sins against you we see both imputation and non-imputation brought together for you and me in Christ now first we find that Paul begins the section with a question that's connected to what's just happened and he basically is asking this was was Abraham justified by works This is what he says in verses 1 to 2. See, Paul has just declared that justification by faith alone, it eliminates every hint of human boasting. Now, with that in mind, he's asking this question in verse 1, which he clarifies in verse 2. So look with me at verse 1 again. This is what he says in verse 1. Paul says, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? The question in verse 1, it might at first appear awkward. As you're looking at this question, you look at this word gained by Abraham, and you might ask, what is this What is the idea that's trying to be expressed? Well, this word for gain can also be, be translated as found. So I take it that what Paul is, is asking is something like, what was found by Abraham, our father, according to the flesh? And by implication, what can we learn about how one is justified from this great patriarch of the Jewish and Christian faith? What can we learn from him and his spiritually, his spiritual journey? Well, Paul explains that he's what he's getting at in verse 2. So if you look at verse 2, uh, he goes on to, to clarify. He says, For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God, not before God. Now, if Abraham was justified by works, and he wasn't, he'd have something to boast about, but he doesn't, and that's why he declares, "But not before God." Now, it sounds like what he just said in Romans 3:20. If you look back up there, you'll remember in Romans 3:20, he began shifting to this section. By saying, for by works of the law, no human flesh will be justified in his sight, being in God's sight. And the rest of the chapter, chapter four, is going to unpack the reality of this. But this is a good time, I think, just to stop. We need to to sort of pull over for just a second and ask ourselves, why is Paul, as he's talking about this doctrine of justification by faith alone, all of a sudden, spending a whole chapter on the life of Abraham. Why Abraham? And I think that's a good question. Now, we could give a number of reasons. I've got a few here. Uh, For one, Paul is continuing to demonstrate for us the continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Second, Abraham is kind of a big deal, and that's probably reason enough. I mean, if you think about the nature of Abraham, uh, Abraham spiritually is a patriarch of the father for Jews and Gentiles alike. He was held as a kind of hero of the faith for the people of Israel. Jews revered Abraham as a model of faithfulness. So Abraham is talking, I mean, Paul here is talking about faith and works and he's trying to show the difference between the two. Well. Abraham was seen by many Jews as an example of works faithfulness. Now here's the problem. Jews of Paul's day saw Abraham as an example of justification according to works of the flesh. Now Paul is is teasing this out, and he's appealing to a couple of Old Testament texts. Of course, the main one is Genesis 15, 6. But notice, second, that God... Justifies the ungodly by counting them righteous. This is what Paul highlights in verses 3 to 5, that God justifies the ungodly by counting them righteous. Now, Paul first, again, he appeals to Genesis 15, 6, and he does this in verse 3, and he's showing that God justified Abraham based on faith, and then he explains how he understands this justification by faith in verses four to five. So, notice a couple of things here. First, God credited Abraham with righteousness based on faith in verse three. Now, this quote, again, that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, highlights a couple of things. And I want you to see both of these these actions that we find in this verse. The first action is by Abraham, and the second is by God. Notice first that Abraham believed God. Now, this word for belief, it comes from the same root as faith. It means that he put his faith in or trusted God. And specifically, he trusted in the promises of God. So when we just read Genesis chapter 15, you'll remember that it's actually highlighted that he trusted God's promise of an offspring through whom many nations would come. And so... What faith looked like for Abraham was trusting in the promises of God that had been given to him. God promised Abraham that offspring and a land through whom he would bless the nations in Genesis 12. Now this verse does not say that Abraham was faithful so God counted him as righteous. Now, Abraham was a, a pagan before he was a patriarch. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness before he tried to help God by having a child with Hagar instead of Sarah, who was barren. He was counted righteous before he was circumcised in chapter 17. Before he told Abimelech that Sarah was his sister to say both their necks in chapter 20. Before he took his promised son Isaac to sacrifice him and God provided him with a substitute sacrifice in chapter 22. Before all of this, Abraham believed God and it was credited to his account as righteousness. Now, if you follow the life of Abraham from the time that he believed God and was counted as righteous to the end, you'll notice that he had a kind of clunky faith, right? It wasn't like a perfect, like no-nonsense, no-hiccup kind of faith, but instead, as you follow the process of his life, you see him growing in his trust and his confidence in God and his faithfulness. Before his faith matured, though, you'll notice that a second action took place. In Genesis 15, it was counted to him as righteousness. Counted by who? Well, by God. God counted righteousness to Abraham's account. Now, as I said before, this word for account is an accounting term referring to crediting one's account. And catch how Paul clarifies the nature of this accounting in verses 4 to 5. He wants to, to make it more clear. And notice here, we find that God justifies the ungodly by grace not grit. God justifies the ungodly by grace, not grit. Here's what Paul says in verses four to five. He says, now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but trust him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. See, Paul says there are two different ways to understand why God counted Abraham as righteous. One is grace and the other is is grit. So, notice first that Jews understood Abraham's grit to have earned his righteous standing. Now, Jews may have understood Abraham to have earned a righteous standing before God based on his faithful, gritty works. There were some who believed this. But if that were the case, Paul says Abraham's righteousness before God, his right standing, would be his due. A word that speaks of financial obligation of one party to another. It would be as though God were obligated to give that righteousness to Abraham based on what Abraham had done. There's another way to look at it, not based on grit, but based on grace. And Paul says, Abraham needed to be justified by grace through faith, just like every other human in verse five. You you might have lofty visions of Abraham as a hero, and he was a mighty man of God, but he too needed the grace of God, according to Paul. Now here's the startling reality that Paul invites his listeners into. Abraham was ungodly when God visited him with his saving righteousness. Abraham was ungodly. He was amongst the ungodly sinners. He was not in sort of first class, flying in a different section than everybody else. He was with us back in coach. Now to put it in financial terms, Paul says Abraham was spiritually bankrupt along with the rest of humanity and desperately needy for God's grace. Now you've heard of generational wealth, but Abraham had generational spiritual poverty that he could not pay even if he were to work for an eternity. Now here's the question. If it's not Abraham's righteous works that are being credited to his account, his earned wages, then whose is it? That's right. It's the very righteousness of God that has been credited to Abraham's account. For Abraham, faith meant trusting in God's promise of an offspring in a land. Abraham trusted God, and God gifted him with credit of his very own righteousness. Now, I want to make a few important points here. First, Paul might not say it explicitly here, but his argument, I believe, is undergirded by a view of God, by a theology of the nature of who God is. I believe that in this, Paul is speaking from a point of view that recognizes the aseity of God, the self-sufficiency of God, the fact that God is from himself, that he is the uncreated one, that he is self-sufficient in all things, that he is not needy. Second, don't misunderstand Abraham believing God and it being credited to him as righteousness to mean that our faith is our justifying act of righteousness. Now some take it that way. Faith is not equated with righteousness here. That's not the math that works out as you work through uh, Romans chapter four faith is not a, a work that merits salvation faith is grounded in this text in god's grace justification does not mean that god looks at our faith and says oh you know what that's 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 pretty good i think it's like a five dollar faith the bill is a trillion dollars but man you know you're really trying and I, I reckon that's good enough. No, faith is not credited as righteousness because our, our faith is, is good enough. But righteousness is the thing that is credited to us. Instead, God is crediting righteousness to us through the instrument of faith. Ephesians 2.8 says, By grace and through faith you are saved and not of yourselves. Now, this makes sense. We don't cling, if you think about it, to our faith to make us right with God. Does that make sense? We're not clinging to faith to make us right with God because that obligates God to forgive us. No. Our faith clings to Christ and the promises that are made to us in Jesus. And that is the thing that that changes everything. Third, the coming in this text describes what we call imputation. The counting in this text describes what we call imputation. That means that God, he counts, credits, reckons, or imputes righteousness to our accounts based on faith. Now, a person becomes a Christian by putting their faith in the perfectly righteous life of Jesus Christ, who lived a perfect life for us, who died a a substitutionary death on the cross for our sins, and was raised from the dead. We trust God for all of the promises that he has made to us in Christ, and in return, he credits our bankrupt accounts with the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ, the God-man. That's God's grace to us. That. Fourth, the imputation of Christ's righteousness comes with the impartation of the Spirit's help. Now, Paul here, you might look at this and say, it seems like he's just against people working. Like, is this some kind of like, you know, communism of some sort? Like, what's he doing? Does he just want us to sit at home, spiritually? Well, as Leon Morris says, Paul's not canonizing laziness. I, I like that phrase. He's not canonizing laziness here. No, justification by faith alone, it doesn't come alone, it it comes with access to the Father, access to every spiritual blessing. If we receive the perfect work of Christ, we have access to every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, and those who receive God's perfect righteousness are being perfected from one degree of glory to the next. If we don't see spiritual progress, and we only see spiritual regress in our lives, I think what Paul would say is we might need to trace our steps back to see if we have been credited to our spiritual bank account with the righteousness of Christ. That credit changes everything. Now part of this imputation of God's righteousness to you is God counting you as righteous, but another part means God not counting your sins against you. In other words, he first says you're imputed or credited with the righteousness of Christ, and then he says In the last two verses, you are not imputed with your sins, a thing that you do deserve. Notice third. In verses 6 to 8, he shows that justification means that God does not count your sins against you. See, Paul's continuing to build this case, and he adds to it another voice of a spiritual hero, David, in Psalm thirty-two one to 2. And as he's expounding on justification by faith alone from the book of the law in Genesis... What he's doing here, I think, something that Jews would have picked up on, is now he's adding to it a verse from David in the writings. So that now he's showing that the law and the writings, the whole Old Testament together, confirms this reality of justification by faith alone. David and Abraham both saw it. And in verse 6, this is what Paul says, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one whom God counts as righteous, apart from works... David speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Now, David here, with this word blessing, he is speaking of the one who flourishes, the person who's in a happy place, in a good place. It's the same word that he uses in Psalm 1 where he describes the blessed man who is like a tree that is fruitful by living waters, where he is living a fruitful, a good life. It's it's kind of an Edenic Eden kind of picture where you have this fruitful garden that is a place of peace with God. He says, this person is blessed. Now, who is David talking about? And who is Paul pointing to in this? Well, notice that David explains that this good place is for the person who is a sinner who is counted righteous apart from their works. Look what he says in verses 7 to 8. This is what he says. He says this. This is David, Paul quoting David. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Now, it's the same word here uh, that he's using uh, for Psalm 1 again. He's talking about a flourishing man in Psalm 32. But you have to ask, how can a a sinner be in a good place with a righteous God? Well, here David, another hero of the faith for the Jews and Christians alike, he was a sinner who experienced justification by faith alone. He understood the life-giving reality of God's grace through faith. That's the good place that David found himself in. See, David pictures God's forgiveness with three images in these verses. Notice that they all are are sort of developing this picture of what it looks like to be forgiven. This word for forgiving can mean, uh, first, legal pardon, particularly of someone who has a financial obligation. But here for Paul, he is pointing not only to forgiveness of old sin debts— but also pointing to the deliverance from the power of sin and a restoration to fellowship with God. And not only that, he says that their sins are covered, another image of forgiveness. Now this image, I think, likely relates to the same idea that you find in Proverbs 10. Proverbs 10, uh, 12, it says hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. See, God covers the sin of his covenant people. He doesn't expose and shame them. He covers their sins in shame and He he receives them as His cherished children. Isn't that a, a precious reality for the people of God? Now, I want my spiritual dad to deal with me in that way. I don't want him to deal with me in the way that I know that I deserve and in verse 8, he goes on to say, Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. See that word for counting again? A happy, flourishing man is the one against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Now, is there anything more glorious, awe-inspiring in all of creation that the self-sufficient God, who is in need of nothing, would look on us as rebellious sinners in all of our debt in all of our need and not walk away so as not to be inconvenienced but to instead lavish us with the very righteousness of his son Jesus Christ the God-man. I will spend an eternity with you brothers and sisters unpacking the glories of that mystery and that will make us a little less catty. Now catch this. God's grace, I believe, reorients us as selfish people towards God's glory. When we understand God's doctrine of imputation, this reality that he has credited to our account the righteousness of Christ, that he has not credited our sins to us, it is reorienting Us not to how good we are and what we deserve, but to the glory of God and how small and light every affliction and slight is weighed in comparison to the unimaginable, unfathomable worth and value of Jesus Christ. That will lead to greater joy when we understand it, when we believe it. That will lead to greater faithfulness when we understand it. Second, God imputes the righteousness of Christ to the believer all at once. And let's just continue to meditate on this for just a bit. When he says that he has imputed to us the very righteousness of God in Christ, he gives it to us all at once. We are not on a layaway plan. See, when you put your faith in Christ, God does not credit your account with a a dollop of righteousness or a, a kind of shard or a sprinkle of righteousness, God backs up the Brinks truck, and he opens up the gate, beep, 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 boom! All of it! He gives you credit for the righteousness of Christ. The value of that righteousness, it does not inflate, it does not deflate, it does not need to, it is perfect. It's not like Bitcoin or cash. It's always perfect and incalculable in value. Now some of us are sad because we need to check the spiritual balance available to us in Christ and if we would only look to his word and pray and seek to bring glory to his name, we would find that we have resources for joy and hope from any situation until Jesus comes. Third, God does not impute righteousness based on the size of your faith. He doesn't look at you and think, I think I'll give them like this much righteousness because they've got this much faith. And that much righteousness, that was maybe a little bit too much. You really are not looking good today. No, we're told a mustard seed, size of faith, very small, receives credit for the full righteousness of the God-man, Jesus Christ, who lived a life of perfect righteousness for us. Please hear me. We live in a world where we are bombarded with what? Peace? No, outrage. Everyone is angry. You go to social media, who do you hear? The people that are angry. You go to the news, you hear people angry about angry people. Everybody's just outraged. And we hear those messages constantly. And it can make us angry and filled with outrage. And we need to recalibrate our hearts to the beautiful riches of the gospel, of the God who justifies the ungodly who did not give them what they deserved, but gave them grace. That'll silence our anger, and it will replace it with an otherworldly kind of hope and joy. And let me say this, this world needs to see people who have hope and joy, because there are not many who do. A non-Christian... You might be listening to this and think this just doesn't sound fair. The math doesn't work out. You can't count the ungodly as righteous because uh, then what about all the ungodly deeds? They wouldn't be held to account. The debit column is still full. Well, here's the good news of Jesus Christ. We find that this same word for counting is actually used in the Greek version of Isaiah 50 through 12. A text that is looking forward towards the coming Messiah who would also be a suffering servant. And we find that that text says, speaking of him, therefore I will divide him a portion with the many and he, this Messiah, shall divide uh, the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered or counted or imputed with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. The reason the math works out is because of who Jesus is and what Jesus accomplished at the cross. Jesus paid for our unrighteousness in full. And when you put your faith in him, your debit account, which you can't catch up on, is replaced by an account of the very eternal righteousness of Christ himself. If you haven't put your faith in Christ today, then you're in the place where you are facing Paying for your sins yourself. Somebody's going to pay, either Christ or you. If you put your faith in Jesus, Jesus pays for your sins. You become a child and not an enemy. You become someone who is rich and an inheritor, not a debtor. If Jesus pays, you become a child of God. If you pay, you face eternal damnation. You face God's wrath and death. So this morning, if you haven't put your faith in Jesus, grace is calling. Trust in Christ. Let's pray. Father, this morning as we come before you, we praise you that you have credited the righteousness of the God-man Jesus Christ to our accounts. Father, if there is someone here who has not put their faith in Jesus, who on that last day will have to pay for their sin debt before you themselves, Father, awaken them to the reality that they cannot pay it, that they are destined for destruction. Help them to see the beauty of the riches that are available to them in Christ. Father, now as we prepare our hearts to sing, help us sing to the glory of your name and leave this place living in light of the glories of the gospel. It's your name we do pray. Amen.
5: I heard mercy call my
3: that would like to raise your children instilling God's values and His words into their lives. Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries can send you CDs of our children's program. If any of you are interested in the program, please contact the office or email us to receive the CD. I hope that this program can spread out through our English-speaking children. Our office number is 602-866-8999. And the email address is heartandsoul.org at gmail.com.
0: The following program is called Equipping the Saints, provided by ETS Ministry.
6: Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. I'm Pastor Greg Lundsted, and I'm so glad that I can share my series from Equipping the Saints with you, I pray that God will grow each and every one of you in Christ through this series. Concerning the Ninevite salvation, why would Jonah be so angry? Why would this guy be so mad at such a good thing? Salvation. Why would we be so mad as we will see it such a good thing? Sanctification. As God uses evil. And allows it to bring about good. Why is Jonah so mad? We can get into all the sub-issues and commentators go for volumes on all the issues that might have caused Jonah to be angry. Maybe it was his hatred of the Ninevites and their wickedness, which is true. Maybe he hated them because they were poised to invade Israel the way they were expanding. Maybe he hated them as some commentators would say because as he would go back to Israel, he might be considered a false prophet because he declared judgment and it didn't happen. Maybe there's all sorts of reasons why Jonah might have been angry, but the bottom line is every single one of those sidetracks us from what God wants us to learn in this passage, which I believe is what the heart of anger is and the core of anger. Jonah has an outward issue that he's angered by, and it's the salvation of the Ninevites. It is an extreme example for us, right? And he's angry. But behind this, there is an inward problem. I believe we'll see the heart of that problem as we look at his prayer. First one again, but it greatly displeased Jonah. He became angry. It was evil to him, a great evil. He became hot. I believe that's the best translation. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that thou art a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in lovingkindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. I think the first thing we're going to see is Jonah's got a warped view of God. He's got a work view of God and he's actually in this statement going to justify his previous sin, which he was disciplined almost to death for. And he prayed to the Lord, the I am Yahweh, the great I am, and said, please Lord, wasn't this what I said? Didn't I tell you so, Lord? When I prayed back there when I was wanting to flee, I knew you would go save them. Didn't I tell you this? And you did it. This is why I fled. And so we have some serious problems here at the core of Jonah's anger. First of all, he's backtracking and justifying his previous sin. We do that, don't we? We confess our sin. We get convicted over it. God's discipline is heavy on us. And then things change, and we get a burr in our saddle, and we start to justify that same sin. Jonah's doing it. He's justifying it. And here we're going to see the core of anger, the heart of anger. Jonah's saying, basically, I told you so, God. I told you so. I'm right and you are wrong, God. And this is the core of anger. An idolatrous, selfish view that our understanding is better than God's. That we believe our perception and understanding of circumstances and issues is better than God's. It's almost unbelievable to think that after what Jonah has gone through, almost dying, being in this slimy whale, really kind of repenting there. It seems like he wants to do what God wants to do. God stops the discipline. And at this point, he would say this and pray this. In your own time, note the difference between the prayers in chapter 2 and the prayer here. They're totally different. Jonah, in effect, is saying, I told you so. Oh, but who? Who are you, O man, to talk back to God? This is dangerous ground to be standing on. Remember that God brought Jonah to within an inch of his life before, right? Isaiah 45, verse 9. Woe to the one who quarrels with his maker, an earthenware vessel among vessels of earth. Will the clay say to the potter, What are you doing? Or the thing you are making say, He has no hands? Woe to the one who quarrels with his maker. In the core of Jonah's anger, we see a justification of his sinful actions in the past. He says, please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my country? Therefore, in order of sauce, I fled. I, my, I, I, my, my, Lord. Jonah's exhibiting a warped view of God. He believes what God has done in saving the Ninevites is a evil thing. It was evil to Jonah. It was evil. It was not good. And folks, some of you think that what God allows in your life is evil and not good. So you get angry. And at the core of anger is an idolatrous heart that believes that we know better than God. You believe what's happening to you is bad rather than good. Salvation of the Ninevites, as we will see, was good. Your sanctification is good. It's part of your salvation. But what is good? What is good? We're going to see this statement later on where the Lord says basically, is doing good angering you, Jonah? Is doing good angering you? Do you have any good reason to be angry? That's really, but what is good? Do you remember what the Lord Jesus said to the rich young ruler in Mark chapter 10? And he was setting out for a journey, verse 17, and a man ran up to him and knelt before him and began asking him, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God. Implicit in that statement is he knows that person doesn't believe he's God. Why do you call me good? Only God is good. So first of all, God is good, and true goodness comes from God. Every good gift comes from above, relating to salvation. Now, why do I bring this up? Ultimately, because God is characterized by good. His deeds are good. His redeemed people are good. They are saved unto good deeds which He has prepared. And we need to understand that everything God does and allows is good. The salvation of Ninevites, Jonah says, evil. It's so extremely obvious to us it's a good thing. But Jonah is blinded by his warped understanding, and we can become the same way so easily. And that's why it's so important to be instructed by the words. Well, what do we know about God being good? We've heard some earlier from Psalm 103, Psalm 25.8, and I'm going to read some verses, and you can note them down and examine them later. Psalm 28.5, good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. Psalm 86.4 and 5, make glad the soul of thy servant. For to thee, O Lord, I lift up my soul. For thou, O Lord, art good and ready to forgive. It's always tied with his attributes of forgiveness and goodness. Psalm 73, verse 1, the Psalm of Asaph. Surely God is good to Israel for his loving kindness is everlasting. Psalm 106, 1, Praise the Lord, oh give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. By the way, Jonah had most of this truth, as we'll see. Psalm 118, 29, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Psalm 104, and 5, Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. For the Lord is good. His loving kindness is everlasting. Psalm 145, 8 and 9. There's so many other verses. This is just a few of them. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger. We'll see this in a minute. And great in loving kindness. The Lord is good to all. Psalm 34, 8. David, inspired by the Holy Spirit, tells all of us, to taste and see that the Lord is good. And what the Lord does is good. Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of His benefits. Don't forget. Who pardons your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion, who satisfies your years with good things. So that your youth is renewed like the eagle. Psalm 84 verse 11, for the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord gives grace and glory. No good thing does he withhold from the upright. But you're saying it's bad. It's evil. It's not good. Like Jonah. When we get mad, we're saying it's bad. We're saying it's evil. Lamentations 3. Jeremiah is looking at Jerusalem after it has been destroyed. People have been slaughtered and the remainder have been taken to captivity in Babylon. And he says, remember my affliction and my wandering. The wormwood and bitterness surely my soul remembers and is bowed down within me. This I recall to mind, therefore I have hope. The Lord's loving kindness is indeed never cease. His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, it says my soul. Therefore I have hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the person who seeks him. God's good, and what he does is good. And Jonah is exhibiting a warped view of God. He believes that what God had done in saving the Ninevites is a very evil thing, not a good thing. This is the core of anger, that you believe what's happening to you is bad rather than good, that you know better than God. Now notice his wickedness in his prayer reveals a further warp view, but ironically God's gracious character. Again, back in Jonah 4, verse 2, And he prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to phastalus, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew, here's what he knows, that thou art gracious and compassionate, God, slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Amazing, Jonah knew this, which all applies to salvation. But he says the Ninevites, salvation is evil. He knew that God was gracious, compassionate, slow to anger. By the way, Jonah was very quick to anger. God's slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness. Jonah's basically quoting Exodus 34, 6, and 7, and it's restated many times in Scripture, Joel 2, 13, in the Psalms, as we saw. The Hebrew term gracious conveys just that, graciousness, favor towards the undeserving. Certainly the Ninevites were undeserving. I knew you were gracious, God. Compassionate means loving deeply. It carries the idea of understanding in this loving favor. It's used in other places to speak of a mother who understands and lovingly cares for her children. Slow to anger, God is patient, long-suffering to those who rightfully deserve His anger because His anger is righteous anger. And then we have the phrase abundant and loving kindness, Rob Chesed, which speaks of an overflowing Chesed. We've talked about this, an overflowing love, God's loyal love, loving kindness, overflowing And lastly, God is rightly declared to be one who relents concerning calamity. He is willing to turn from the judgment he proclaims if there is repentance. Jonah knew this. Jonah understood he was gracious, chose favor towards the undeserving, compassionate, deeply loving, slow to anger, patient, long-suffering, overflowing loyal love and one who relents. A list of God's attributes displayed throughout Scripture tied heavily to His salvation of us. And throughout Scripture, these attributes consistently, habitually bring the psalmist or whoever to praise God, not get angry at Him. I knew you were this way. See how how twisted his thinking is. Verse 2 should be very disturbing to us, and it should be a warning to how easily our... Thinking can become twisted. But God's gracious. He uses his word to confront our thinking. He loves us. He's compassionate. He's good. Jonah's view of God is very warped, as evidenced by his anger concerning what God had done. Jonah knew the truth, but he didn't like that truth when it applied to the Ninevites. You may know the truth concerning how God sanctifies, but you may not like that truth when it's applied to you. How could this be? Evidently, somewhere along the line, Jonah picked up some bad understanding, some bad theology in which he saw God's compassion only for Israel and not for others. It's good that God's loving kind to us. It's not good that he is to them. This happens all the time, folks, where people take some bit of Scripture and elevate a truth beyond other truths in Scripture, a type of doctrinal reductionism resulting in a warped view of God, to Satan's perverse delight. I could give a myriad of examples. I'll give you a couple here. Consider the hyper-Calvinist who only focuses on God's sovereignty and election, truths which are taught in Scripture, but yet this focus is to the exclusion of other truths in Scripture, the clear fact in Scripture that God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, rather that they return and repent, Ezekiel 18, Or you might have those who focus on human responsibility and reject the teaching of election and have the equal and opposite error and then try to manipulate mankind into the kingdom, thinking that they are the ones who save rather than God ultimately. There's a whole bunch of different errors that come from taking one truth and not seeing it correctly in light of other truths. Throughout the Old Testament, there were key passages to point that God's love was not only reserved for Israel, that it would go to the Gentiles. So ultimately, from Jonah's erroneous thinking, he thought he knew better than God. Therefore, in his idolatrous, twisted mind, the result would be anger. When you're not thinking right concerning the nature of God and concerning his word, you're going to get angry when things happen around you like that. Good things, but they can be evil to you. Angry Christians are those who do not have a right view of God. The heart of anger, as I've shared, is that you believe what's happening to you is bad rather than good. Even if you sin when God lets bad happen, He's disciplining for good. And even when you haven't sinned and He allows bad to happen, He's using that to conform you to the image of Christ for good. And underneath that attitude is a lack of submission, as we saw in Jonah's life. You say God works things together for good all day long. You know the truth like Jonah did. But as long as you're angry, you don't believe it. Jonah knew truth about God, but this truth was warped. It was evil to him. And as I've shared, there are a lot of you out there who see things as evil to you. You are in a dangerous situation spiritually when this happens For you have in your heart rebelliously rejected the truth concerning the fact that God is good and that he does everything for good. So instead of praising him, you're angry. Instead of Jonah praising him for his great goodness, this tremendous salvation, he's angry. Did Jonah have any good reason to be angry? No. Do you have any good reason to be angry? No. Are you willing to admit and repent of an idolatrous, selfish view of God? If you're still angry, there are deadly consequences coming, and we're going to see that in Jonah's life. So first of all, how can we avoid these consequences? We need to understand at the core of this type of anger, this anger that is not one in which you have confessed or the sun does not go down. It's the sun has gone down in this anger. At the core of this is a warped view of God. Warped by evil, self-centered, Jonah's thinking, selfish thinking, seeing things through your own light rather than what God has revealed. But secondly, we need to recognize there are deadly fruit and consequences to this. Again, verse 1, Jonah 4, But it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. It was a great evil to him, and he became hot. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall us, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that thou had a gracious, compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents concerning calamity. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better than life. Take my life, please say it.